Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is L Acoustics product engineer, Scott Sugden. But this is a big deal here. Content online, this is audio and video, is getting shorter. And it's getting longer at the same time. Well, we know that songs are getting shorter, and we've seen this over and over. If you listen to anything that hits the top 40 of just about any chart, we know that songs have changed in their form. There's no more intros and no more outros, and there's no such thing as fades and no solos at all. Sometimes there's no bridges at all. So everything has changed, and the songs have gotten a lot shorter. But it's happened in video as well. Now, we've known also for a long time that the average time that someone spends watching a video on YouTube is around 2 minutes and 37 seconds. That being said, if you want your video to be watched all the way through till the end, it should be 1 minute or less. Okay, so we know that, but there are several new studies that have found out that you're a lot better off to have short pieces, especially short video pieces, that are under 10 seconds. Or, on the other hand, longer than one hour. And anything in between really suffers. Now, the way this was derived was, first of all, looking at the movies. The average shot length, in other words, the time in between edits, is now around four seconds. The average watch time on Facebook is around 10 seconds. And then there's this figure that absolutely blows my mind. Every single day... There are 1 billion video uploads of less than 6 seconds. 1 billion. So we're consuming short bites of content. Now that's not the only thing that's changing. There are some people that are actually doing two different videos. They're doing one that's vertical, so it's very, very mobile friendly, and then the other in a standard 16 by 9. So... There's a lot more production that goes into it, obviously, so we're looking more at the superstars that do this, but nonetheless they are because they find that they get more views. All this leads to the question, is this good for art? So I always say that art is something that you do for yourself, and a craft is something that you do for everyone else. And it seems like all sorts of content, no matter what it is, is falling more in the craft side than the art side these days. I don't think that's good for any of it. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, everything in our computer lives, our cell phone lives, our electronic lives, is built around solid-state memory these days. And in many cases, you probably still have hard drives that have spinning magnetic platters. I'd venture to say that these are about to go away as we find more solid-state drives being phased in and the spinning platter drives, the hard drives that we're used to, kind of get phased out. Now, one of the reasons why we want solid-state drives is the fact that, well, they're pretty robust. 
unlike a hard drive, a regular magnetic drive, if you drop it, chances are you're going to harm it in some way. Solid state drive, drop it, no problem. So we all like that, especially in our laptops. There's no mechanical failure. They're a whole lot faster, a whole lot. But you might not have known that they actually can wear out. It takes a long time for them to wear out. And I can't even begin to tell you why they do. But the fact is, they do. And that's why for some long-term archival use, spinning magnetic hard drives are still what they prefer. But the whole idea here is that solid-state drives are fairly expensive. And there's a limitation to how large they can be. But that's about to change. There's something new called a PLC, or a pentalevel cell solid-state drive. Now, in the beginning, solid-state drives are all one bit. In other words, every cell in the solid-state drive was one bit. It was either on or off. And then we went to two-bit, so we could store twice as much material. And now, we're to pentalevel, and this is five bits per cell. And what this means is that we're going to have much, much larger drives. As a matter of fact, none of them are going to be less than one terabyte. And they're going to be cheaper than ever. This is around the corner. They're not available right now, but you're going to see them in the relatively near future. Here's the downside. They're going to be a little bit slower than the solid-state drives that we see today. That being said, it's not going to impact anything, especially when it comes to audio, because the solid-state drives that we have are plenty fast, and plenty fast for big track counts. That's not going to change with PLC drives. But anyway, look for this to happen. I think you're going to see that suddenly we're going to have these big, cheap drives that are solid state, and that's going to be what we're going to be using from now on. You're going to see fewer and fewer magnetic platter drives in our future. My guest today is Scott Sugden, who started as a live systems engineer for bands like Van Halen and the Steve Miller Band to theater productions like Spamalot and the Producers before specializing in large format sound system design for festivals. He initially came to L Acoustics as an application support and education engineer, which led into a product role with the company. Scott is now product manager for L Acoustics' fantastic Eliza Immersive Audio System, and I was so lucky to get a first-hand listen to a system in the company's demo room after we recorded this interview. I strongly believe that this is going to become a revolution that will change how we enjoy a concert experience, and Scott is the evangelist that teaches front-of-house mixers how to use it. During the interview, we spoke about the role of the systems engineer, the idea behind immersive audio in a live environment, improving the concert experience for the audience, and much, much more. I spoke with Scott via Skype from the L Acoustics offices outside of Los Angeles. How did you start in the business and get to where you are now? Sure. Uh, so actually, uh, I went to... Uh, starting actually in, in actually high school. So 20 something years ago, I, my older brothers, I have a couple older stepbrothers who are performers, one who actually sang for the New York Metropolitan Opera. Oh. Uh, um, and they were always on stage doing musicals and I didn't really want to be on stage, but I wanted to be involved in theater. So I actually did musical theater in high school for, as a sound tech. Um, and when I was 16 or 17, um, we got a new sound system in our auditorium and it so happens the the guy running for mayor of our city was a system integrator. So he taught us all how to use it. And we had an EAW 650 system, um, and a Soundcraft console and sure wireless, you know, all real equipment. And at 16 years old, that's pretty impressive to have. Um, and we had a good music program in that school 
and our musical director at that school had a friendship with uh, several band leaders. And so when, you know, those big bands came through town, they would come and play our school in the afternoon. So actually the very first band ever mixed in my entire life was the Count Basie Orchestra. Wow. Uh, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Not that it's much mixing, right? I mean, <laughs> I, I think the band leader said, put up four microphones and don't touch anything. Um, but uh, I learned, you know, quite a lot by listening to a lot of music and being a part of a lot of productions. Um, in high school, I was, a, I really enjoyed math and physics. I actually went to university in that intention of studying physics. Uh, my first day in the dorms, my neighbors were talking music and jazz and I'm like, Oh, I, I, I got to mix sound for Count Basie and Maynard Ferguson and a few others. And they're like, wow, that's really neat. We have a show tomorrow. Do you want to come mix sound for it? Huh. And, uh, I'm like, sure. Why not? And so the very next day, uh, working with this college university band, you know, it's the typical 12 people on stage and every, play a little bit of every format of music and uh the story it's it's a fun story now because um a lot of us have become quite successful in different parts of the, the world but um the lead singer of that band was up on stage doing sound check and i happened to bring my cool headphones i had from high school and i'm behind the council mixing you know sound check and uh just as he's the lead singer's playing the guitar and starting to sing the football player kind of guy jumps on stage and grabs the mic from him. And the first thing I did is turned every channel off. Um, and the football player is upset that it's not working. And I put my headphones on and pretend like I'm trying to fix it. And as soon as he put the mic back and stepped off the stage, I turned the channels back on sound check kept going. And so since then the, the band was like, Oh, you're going to stick around. So we did hundred shows a year and decided to record an album. And as opposed to going to a studio, we built a studio in one of the kids' parents' house. Um, and bought a Pro Tools rig and borrowed microphones. And, and you learn a lot when you're not in a situation where you're spending $800 a day, but spending time. And yeah. so I learned a lot. I was studying physics. That all starts to make sense. Um, and one thing led to another. I, I realized that I enjoyed doing sound. And more importantly, I think I enjoyed doing systems. I, I can mix fine. And no one's going to be upset about the way I mix, but I don't think I'm going to mix the next uh, Grammy album or or major tour. But understanding how the behavior of a system works and how the behavior of sound propagation works and how you can create really interesting things in large spaces that my brain is really well suited for that. So I, I kind of drifted in that direction over time and, and ended up here 15 years later. So, Well, how did you get from being uh, an engineer to working for L Acoustics? Yeah, I, I, the, the, I went to university in Wisconsin and there's a big rental company in Milwaukee near where I was from, which is called Clearwing Productions. Um, and so one summer in university, I worked there and started wrapping cables because we all start wrapping cables and putting them in a case and started pushing cases on the truck. And eventually they let me take the truck to the show and then eventually they let me do that. Um, and so I worked hard and, and paid attention to what was going on and, and got myself in the right situations um, to being on bigger and bigger shows. And when you work for a rental company, your career path is more advantageous towards the systems engineer side than a mix, right? Um, it's easier to get onto big shows if you're willing to do that or good at that. And so that's what I started drifting towards. And over time, I, I ended up doing more and more and bigger things. One of the last tours I did before I started L Acoustics was the reunion of uh, Eddie Van Halen and Dave Lee Roth. Oh, it was, uh, 2008, I want to say 2009. Yeah. And and that was a really fun tour in a lot of ways. Um, I, at that time of my career, I ended up working for everybody who was a guitar player. So I, I was working for Eddie Van Halen and Steve Miller at the same time. 
in the same year. So it was systems engineer for those guys um, and touring with them. But that's what got me from university, eventually small rental company, mid-sized rental company, touring with them. As they grew, I was growing. Um, and eventually I started doing touring. I toured with musical theater productions um, and with pop music and did special events and, and started eventually in that path doing more and more large format festival design. And I came to Acoustics to do application support and education initially and have eventually evolved here into a product management role. Just go back for a second. When you're doing systems engineering on a tour, once the show starts, can you relax once the show starts? Yeah, there's not a whole lot you can do at that point, right? Yeah. Uh, I mean, once the show's running, uh, if if an amplifier fails, do you have a spare? Uh, yes, fix it. No, don't worry about it. Um, I mean, it's kind of a really binary choice at that point. Yeah. Um, as a systems engineer, you know, I'll do a quick walk around, but effectively, if I've done a poor job system design and tuning in the afternoon, there's not much resurrection I'm going to be able to pull out at 7 p.m. or 8 p.m., right? Um, most of my work happened at 7 a.m. or 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. If I've done a good job then, then the rest of the day is easy. Um, so I always advocated taking the time in the beginning of the day, getting the proper measurement to the room, getting a proper system design together, taking your time. I would actually delay load in for a half hour if it meant I need to spend the time on this to make sure it's right. Because if I have to catch up and bring the PA back down to fix something, I've wasted far more time than if I just said, let's do something else for 30 minutes. We'll I'll be ready for you in a little bit. Yeah. So by the time show rolls around, yeah, there's, there's not much that can be done. I can turn the front fills up 2 dB, but it turns out if the front fills aren't high enough, I can't fix that. Yeah. in the middle of the show yeah. and turning them up 2db does not help the fifth row if i'm not covering it you know yeah yeah and same thing with i can't change a delay placement now yeah know. sure i want to get into elisa because th that's a, a big deal but before we do that you mentioned about tuning the system yeah. what did you use to tune the system uh, when you played actual music what did you you use what tracks what tracks uh, back then or now i mean either i'm curious I get in a rut, you know, I mean, I use uh, Jennifer Warren's or Boz Skaggs or um, some, I have some Ray Charles tracks I use from time to time. Um, but I can remember using uh, some Bruce Hornsby years ago and it was just a track that you know well, yeah. right? I, I don't think that there necessarily needs to even be an intrinsic quality to the track that's that relevant other than the fact that you know what it's supposed to sound like. Yeah. You know, and it represents music good. I, I tend to not play tracks with a lot of distortion because you can't hear if the PA is distorting uh, if the track is. Um, but there's certain tracks, uh, uh, it's like a Jeff Buckley track I'll use a lot that that's got a lot of really good impactful tight low end. And I can tell if the room is going to be a problem with those certain frequencies in the low end. If I hear that track resonate or ring, um, that, that tells me something. Um, I, I, after about two years with every track, I tend to want to retire it for a while cause I've, I've heard it too much. Um, so, so like Fred and I work together at the Hollywood Bowl and and I think we use the same five tracks just because for the last ten years we've listened to the same five tracks on that PA and we know if these sound good that every year they still sound good. Yeah, yeah. When you started at L Acoustics, you mentioned that your job was education. So what did that entail? So I, I've been here now a little over ten years and I started doing application support or technical support. So it was design support for shows. Um. Education for systems engineers, uh, system front of house engineers, uh, uh, production managers, even, you know, explaining mm -hmm. how, what, when, where, why. And that would be training seminars. That would be uh, a, 
I'll say a demo or a, a product demonstration for someone to understand how to use it, um, both in a commercial sense and a non-commercial sense. Because we might want to demo something so you buy it, and we might want to demo something so you understand how to take advantage of the, the tools we're offering. Um, and those would be all around the U.S. Uh, and sometimes even around the world from from here, from California. So, uh, and that's where I started. And since then, I've I've evolved more into a, a role of product managing specifically on on certain things. I've been a part of the Elisa project for over five years now, um, which is which has been uh, the same thing. We're we're in a mode of teaching people about it, explaining it, so you can understand it, how to use it, how to deploy it. All right, let's talk about Elisa for a second. I was attempting to explain it to a friend of mine just half hour ago, as a matter of fact. And other than immersive audio in a live environment, I couldn't go beyond that. So how would you describe it? Sure, I think there's a couple of different routes we could go to talk about what it is, what it's for, why it exists, right? Yeah. Um, what it's for, I, I think what we're trying to do is give the artist on stage some new palette, a new dimension to create music and art in. Um, and that can be in a million ways, right? That could be a want to have more discreet, more discretion or more uniqueness or connection to what my art is on stage. So for certain artists, this might allow us to really fuse what you hear and what you see. And I, I think probably Fred mentioned that and talked about that ability to just like reconnect these two senses. Other of that is uh, in a live environment, as much as no one's willing to admit it, mix is predominantly mono. Yeah. And that's a function of the reality of the nature, right? Like not everybody gets to hear a good stereo image. And if you make something stereo, the time delay offsets in a large show are dramatic, right? Um, it's not uncommon to have 30 or 40 milliseconds between arrivals of left and right in a mid-sized venue and even more potentially in a large venue at the Hollywood Bowl. 40 milliseconds is probably not unreasonable in certain parts of that venue to hear left and right apart. Wow. And so when you have that kind of time discretion, if you were to put the hi-hat and left and the snare and right, the music groove changes dramatically as you walk across the venue, right? Wow. Um, the way the two are sitting together. Yeah. And we don't think about that in a studio sense or even in an album or recording sense. Stereo works fine, but in live it's a problem. The second thing we're trying to do is think about how we can improve the quality of the sound for the audience. And in actuality, it sounds really good right now in stereo at mix. Like if you go and visit Fred at the Hollywood Bowl and you sit down in the center of the venue, it sounds nice. It sounds really good. It doesn't suck. Um, but for every other seat in the house, they get a pretty flat experience and they don't have that that same feeling that you have in the middle. So there's a sweet spot that's good for 5 or 10% of the audience, but the reality is the other 80% has a lot less than that. With Aliza, what we're trying to do is, is figure out how to make a, a sound system sound more real, more natural, and eliminate these problems of stereo. So when I take a mono instrument, say the kick drum or the snare, lead vocal or the guitar, any of those, and you pan it effectively center, you're reproducing the same signal out of two speakers that are really far apart. And what that means is for most everyone in the audience, they've introduced a comb filter. Mm -hmm. And the analogy I like to say is you'd never buy a microphone that had a comb filter on it. You never use a mixing console that had a comb filter in it. You'd never buy a speaker that generated a comb filter in it, but you're willing to accept a sound design that does. Yeah. Right. So Lisa, we want to get rid of that. We want to reconnect artists on stage. So I look over on the right, I see the guitar, I hear the guitar. I look on the left, I see the bass, I hear the bass. Fine. And then we want to give you guys, whether that's artists on stage or engineers or designers, a new space to play with in terms of sound. So that could be just speakers in front, that could be speakers around, and that could also be speakers overhead. And of course, depending on your environment, 
more or less makes sense, right? Um, a big tour doing arenas every night, it's going to be hard to install surrounds and overheads every single day from a practical standpoint. But a Broadway show or a play or a special event, it, it could be quite easy to do all that. So Lisa is really a culmination of that sound design concept. On our end, it's also a software to design uh, the speaker layout, process the audio, and give you guys control. So we have the ability for mixing engineers to control it in the same way they would control other things like plugins or so on and so forth. So you can mix in that way intuitively and easy. Um, but that's really really what it is. It's a technology to to bring that to more people. What is the ideal system in terms of the number of speakers and where they're placed? Yeah, so that's um, the f- technology is a object-based audio, so there's no specific number, right? So no different than certain cinema object-based audio systems. It's not a defined number. It does start at five, anything less than five, and it's known as LCR that already exists. Um, so it's not, not something we need to worry about. And right now we can do up to 64 discrete outputs for live events. Um, so that's quite a lot at that point. Um, most live shows have been seven, nine, eleven along the front. And if they do surrounds, um, 16, 20 surrounds, you know, is not an uncommon thing. Um, I want to think the Aerosmith show, I think is 10 surround channels and some overheads, six overheads all said and done 10 or 12 surrounds and six overheads. Uh, sounds right to me. And if I'm right, it's, uh, seven or nine across the front off the top of my head. Um, the show Fred did a couple months ago in Korea was 9.1. So just nine arrays across the front to represent the LA Philharmonic in Korea. And that gave uh, enough resolution so that your brain believes what you see is what you hear. Right? So because all we have to have is enough angular resolution so that you can connect the two. You know, our eyes are really good at saying it's right there, but your ears have less accuracy. So we can actually offset the two by some small angular value, but your brain will accept it. And from our end of a design standpoint and a likely to be implemented standpoint, we need to be able to justify how much you're spending, right? So if I just say I need a thousand speakers, that's great. It'll never happen. No one's ever going to do it. So there's a certain relationship that that's works and you accept it. And what we want to do is show how much of the audience we can get within that acceptable range or that ideal range and then what percentage of the audience isn't and then producer or event designer gets to accept that four percent of the audience is less than perfect or 20 percent of the audience is less than perfect that's their choice until now i didn't quite get the connection between the speakers across the front and how this actually works because you think okay so it doesn't matter the number of arrays across the front my brain kind of went to well there's one frontal wave coming out, but it's not that way because you're actually panning in between the speakers to give you the, the sense of width. Connection. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, and the other really neat thing is um, you've heard of the cocktail room effect or the cocktail party effect. Yeah. Sure. And, and so right now when you mix in mono, you're forced to work within a very small dynamic window, whether that's a record or that's live. A live is even more challenging, right? You have a noise floor issue to deal with. Um, if I'm at a festival, the noise floor is 80 dB. So right now I have to be above 80 dB and I can't exceed 105. I've got 25 dB to work with and that's not too bad. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to manage the band's dynamics. And oh, by the way, if the guitar is at 103 and I put the piano at 93, am I ever going to hear it in mono? The answer is no, of course not. Um, that's because everything's coming from the same place. But if I can move the piano 30 degrees to your left, 
and the guitar is the loudest thing. You can still look over, see the piano player moving his hands and connect and see the audio because it's going to come right back together. And that's that cocktail party effect. And so instantly it gives you as an engineer, as an artist, a lot more space to play with in dynamic range and space, right? So you don't have to fit everything in this small window and mess and manage a lot of compression and equalization just to hear everything. You can just give it some geographic space. So if we just mixed everything out of every speaker, we would be back to mono. It would just come from a lot of places. Hmm. Um, but you even would hardly perceive it comes from a lot of places because you hear the first arrival, that's your localization. Your brain goes, it came from that speaker, which happens to be the closest to me. Everything's coming out of it. it everything's coming from that speaker. I don't have any separation. Um, but if I can take those seven rays above the stage and start to space things out, my brain will allow me to pick and choose those a little bit more, and I can hear the music in a different way. This sounds similar to the approach to mixing in Atmos. I'm talking about mixing music. I, I was just over Capitol recently in, in their Studio C and had a, some very impressive demonstrations. But one of the things talking to the mixers that they said was, you know, don't use as much EQ or compression because you can just move things around and it gives you the separation that you need that you'd have to fight for before. Yep, totally. Yeah, exactly. So like it, we, we have a studio here in Westlake, right? So we have our Aliza studio here. It's 23.1. So it's built so that you can create a full 180 degree hemisphere or 360 degree hemisphere. I guess you want to consider that everything above you and around you. Um, and since it's object based, it doesn't matter our speaker layout versus your show. So you can come in and prep stuff. And, you know, you spend 15 minutes and you kind of understand how the tools work and you spend 15 minutes and you start moving stuff around and going, oh, that's kind of neat. And then you start mixing and you realize after 15 minutes on your Pro Tools session or your Digico file that you've eliminated half the plugins that you've been using, right? I don't need all this stuff because once again, I can just move it and I can get the clarity I wanted. I can get the separation I wanted without having to manage that. We don't have to manage the dynamic range like we do in mono or stereo. We don't have to find all that EQ space, right? I don't have to worry about the piano, the guitar, and the voice and the horn all sitting in the same two or three octaves and and really tightly managing their their dynamics it's okay if the guitar is loud for a second because the voice is in a different place mm -hmm. and you can still hear it so it really brings an interesting bit of intelligibility um to uh, a live show especially and, and of course as well to creative environments or even pre-recorded music um, but the same thing true almost it's exactly the same thing that you hear from from cinema or multi-channel recording as well as i just don't need that to achieve the same kind of results. One of the criticisms I have of many live shows is uh, I always get the feeling that some of the front of house engineers have learned the wrong way and that it's very kick and snare and bass oriented subwoofers, you know, over the moon. And you can't distinguish any of the lyrics from the vocalist. And I always learn that you go from whatever softest on stage and mix from there. But I would think that this might help some of that. Just the fact that it's a different approach that you're using. I, I mean, I, I think if, if our goal is to just be louder, um, fine, fair enough, uh, you know, more and more and more sub more and more and more. That's actually kind of easy to do, right? There's nothing really that intrinsically hard about being louder. It turns out if you bring more speakers, it gets louder. You know, but I, I totally agree with you. I think there are some shows where the kick and the snare just completely masks other elements of the show. Um, and I'm not exactly sure why that is. I'm not sure why. And I'm also just as equally frustrated when I when I get to a show, a, a fantastically great show, and, and it's it sounds epic at mix, but nobody seems to care that it doesn't sound that way for everybody else. 
and that to me is a real disappointment. It's like, it sounds great here. It really does. You know, it's, it's tight. It's got, you know, great clarity and detail and you move over 30 feet to your left and nothing the same exists. Yeah. Um, and that's especially true with like subwoofer energy, kick, uh, kick drum and bass guitar and things like that. But it can be almost equally as true with a, with a snare. It's just like all that punch and pop you have right in the middle doesn't exist where most everyone else sits. And the masking effect, you know, I think when you talk about a stereo PA and dual mono, you lose a lot of intelligibility if you're not in the middle. Um, and that's really apparent with a voice, just the, the lack of detail. Um, I think of like a, you go to a show at the Staples Center or a big arena, and if you're sitting upstairs and you're not, you're kind of on the side a little bit, you end up hearing the left sound system and the right sound system, and you also hear the left side sound system. So you have like three or four rivals of every critical element, and that does a really thing. That, that's really hard to hear. I mean, even in a perfect acoustic environment, that's really hard to hear when you have three or four rivals of something separated by 20 or 30 milliseconds or more. You know, that really can, can stress you out as well and, and use a lot of your brain power to just put that back together. Well, speaking of which, then, has the sweet spot expanded for an Elisa system from what it is currently? And, and I'm thinking specifically for just that situation where you have somebody sitting off on the side. What are they experiencing? So let's take that, you know, that, that Aerosmith type show that has those seven arrays up front or nine arrays up front. The design parameters are very simple. Effectively, where you can hear all nine of those equally enough. And I mean equally enough, like within a certain time domain and SPL domain, you're in the sweet spot. Mm-hmm. So at somewhere like uh, the Hollywood Bowl or the Staples Center or or the Santa Barbara Bowl, for example, we might go from anywhere from 10 or 15% in the sweet spot in stereo to maybe 60, 70, 80%. Wow. Um, and so everyone in that domain will hear in a clean way all the different signals all be at about the same level so you might have a little variance which means uh, the bass guitar might be 2 dB louder on house left than on house right but the bass player is also on house left so that kind of feels natural and correct right yeah. if you're further away from him or her they might be a little quieter that's okay right um for everyone else in the venue we then have to create some format of a down mix because we're probably not budgeted or capable of doing another seven or nine arrays on each each zone but that's okay. Um, we're in a situation where we're down mixing to mono or, or stereo or LCR to those people and getting some format of that. And it's not worse than it is now. And arguably at times it's better because you don't have two or three other arrivals. You just have the, the one from the immersive mix and then the one mono mix arrival. Um, so the, the side system in the staple center, for example, might be that, but if we can get 60 or 70% in a sweet spot, that's a, six or seven fold increase to where we are now. Mm, yeah, that's great. That's pretty, pretty significant. When I was reading about this before I talked with Fred recently, one of the things that I came across was there were some musicians on stage that had mentioned it really enhanced their experience. These are people on stage. It just felt better for them. Is that something that's common? Uh, it, I think these were orchestral players, and it seems like that might be a little easier than everybody else. So I'm just wondering, how widespread is that? Yeah, I, I don't know how widespread it is. I've talked to a few performers after their shows and asked them what their perceptions were. Um, the example I use most uh, was a show at Santa Barbara Bowl last year called uh, with Bon Iver. So they, they played, um, um, they specifically wanted to try out the Elisa system to see what it was like. Um, I told them about it. I'd informed them and presented it to them, but they were really interested to give it a try themselves. So they booked the show at the Santa Barbara Bowl. 
and we did a uh, 7.1 at the Santa Barbara wall of, 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 of speakers just up front, no surrounds. And what was interesting was after the show, I went backstage and I was talking to the band. Just, just the question was what, what was your perception? What did you notice? What did you feel? And, um, the interesting thing was the lead singer looked at me and he said, you know what I noticed is that nobody had their cell phones out. Oh. And what's interesting is I had noticed that as well. I'd actually gone up like fourth or fifth song to the back of the venue to take some pictures and, you know, send them off to people. And I took my phone out and realized that there were no phones out. This is a hipster concert in Santa Barbara, right? Yeah. I mean, this should be like everyone instantly on Facebook or Instagram sharing live what they're seeing yeah. and recording it for the internet. And there was like four or five cell phones out amongst 5,000 people for the show. Wow. And it was a really interesting, and I wasn't able to, a number of other people mentioned the same thing to me. They, they, they noticed that like nobody had their phones out. So from an artist perspective, everyone was a lot more engaged to their show, which probably changes how they perform and how they play. Yeah. Um, so for sure, I, I've noticed that. The the band Alt-J has used Elise a number of times, including with fully immersive surround sound. So they've had full surround sound systems for, we did a show in New York with 12,000 people um, outdoor in a stadium, uh, the old uh, US Open Stadium in Forest Hills. And same thing there where the band was instantly noticing how much more engaged everyone in the, the venue was with them um, on stage. And, and you know, for an artist who plays... 200 times a year, I can imagine that's a really powerful experience to, to all of a sudden go back to what it was like you know, many years ago when you played a small club and you could look at everyone's eyes. Yeah. Um, I feel like when I'm in front of the system with uh, most artists, it feels like you're in a much smaller venue. You feel a lot closer to them, you know. So as a, an, uh, uh, an audience member, it's it's a very compelling experience to be there and watch them on stage because I don't feel like I'm at a, pers- a show with 10,000 people. I feel like I'm at a cabaret with 800 or 600 people, which is where you want to see most artists. You want to see most artists where you can actually see their facial expressions. Yeah. Um, at least that's where we can hear it. You know, I can understand that completely because in the Atmos demos, it was the same thing where you felt like you were there. It felt so real that it captured your attention immediately and and you know where it's very easy for your mind to wonder with music especially something that you're not completely into and yet have some new music capture where you just don't want to think about anything else so i could see how this could be very powerful the thing about something with stereo is is no matter how good we make it sound in stereo no matter how beautiful we've reproduced every little detail it, it doesn't sound real yeah yeah. Even on a set of speakers, the most beautiful set of hi-fi speakers in your couch, stereo doesn't sound real. And, you know, you hear um, an immersive platform and you hear it done right, it sounds a whole lot more real than stereo ever can, no matter how perfect a show is. And I don't know 100% why, but to me for sure there's something which is stereo has all the perfect frequency reproduction in the world, has everything like that, but it removes the time. Yeah. There is no time information that tells you where you should be at. And even if you impart the time for a set of headphones, which you can do in binaural, that doesn't scale. So if you go up to a set of bookshelf speakers, that instantly doesn't work. Versus if you take something, an object-based and immersive, and you put that time information back there because it comes from the right place, your brain instantly goes, hey, that, that feels a lot more real to me. That That's how I'm used to hearing things. You know, I hear it just like this in the real world, and now I look at it and I see it. Yeah. So I think that's definitely true, and especially with orchestra live reproductions or, or let's say, uh, bands with musicians that you can see. You know, if it's a if it's a band underneath a riser, well, you can make anything you want. There's no there's no re- right or wrong way. 
But if you can look over and see a guitar player, or a bass player, or a drummer, and and reconnect those things, it feels a lot different than than music just coming from speakers. Okay, so it's a better experience, no question. Yep. But that being said, what are the challenges of rolling this out so it becomes more the norm? Yeah, I mean, someone's got to pay for it, right? I mean, it's going to cost more something. It's uh, even if we can do it with the same speaker dollar budget, I've got more speakers to put up. I've got more trusts and and all that equipment. If it's an install, I need to take positions that used to be relegated to lighting and video. Um, that costs something to somebody, right? How many lighting designers want to let me put a bunch of speaker clusters directly in front of their lights on stage? Um, so we have to we have to become a part of a conversation with creative designers, with artists, with sound designers from day one and not day 37 or day 55. So to make audio the forefront, it's got to be a part of that conversation from the beginning. The conversation has to be with the musician. What, what do you want to do? Not how loud do you want it to be? Or, you know, honestly, uh, I say this all the time, you know, L acoustics invented the line source array, the modern line array that you see at every single show you've ever gone to. How many people in the audience can tell the difference between an L acoustic speaker or brand B, C, D, E, F, really? Very few. Probably not a ton, right? Yeah. It sounds good. It sounds loud. It's it's all this. But if you went from stereo to immersive, how many people can tell the difference? And what I've experienced is most of the audience goes, something's very different. They don't know what it is. They don't know why it is. None of that matters, right? They just know that it's different. It's better. So now that we've done that, people will start to figure out how to make this a part of their show, whether that's from the creative standpoint, the music standpoint, We've got to do that. We got to have more consistent results so that every single show is great, and we don't get that very often in stereo. This show's great, that show's not. Mm-hmm. Um, I think if audio can do that and be more consistent, it's going to get more budget, it's going to get more time, it's going to get more attention, more placement, more this, more that. So I think if we can do those things, if we can get people to realize that it's worth the difference, then the audience will will come to those shows. They'll buy those tickets. They'll 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 support the artist in that way. Um, and that's what we're seeing artists starting to do now is advertise that their show is in Aliza, right? We see that with Aerosmith. Boney Vera's just announced a tour and they're doing the exact same thing. Their show is in Aliza. Alt-J was promoting their shows in New York City and Royal Albert Hall. This show's in Aliza. So they're trying to tell the artists, uh, pardon me, the fans, that they're doing something different that will enhance their experience. And I think that's that's great. Um, I think we'll we'll get there once we have the artists actually communicating it the, of the difference, not just not just the sound guys or the production manager or the the creative designer. Movies have been doing it for decades now with THX, same thing. Yeah, tell the audience that this this theater is better, this movie is better, right? Yeah. It brings you that sound. I mean, honestly, I if I take my kids to the cinema now, I spend the extra money for the 3D, Atmos, every, every, everything. You know, if I'm going to spend the money, I'll spend an extra six bucks and, yeah. and go to the one that's got everything as opposed to the cut down, reduced version of that movie. Yeah. I mean, I think that's true of a lot of us, right? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Okay. Last question, Scott, what's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or you learned along the way? Best piece of business advice. Um, I've always set myself up to succeed. So, uh, personally, um, I'm not risk averse, but, uh, uh, it's important to know that you can be successful at the task you're about to do. Uh, so for me, that means I, I, before I will say, yes, I'll be the first one to do that. I'm just going to do a little bit of research and make sure I know this well. And then, then I spend a lot of time learning my task and my skill to, to succeed at it, uh, as much as possible. The joke I always had, I, I would, uh, 
mixed musical theater and and uh, doing a, a Broadway mix. I, I I would never tell anyone I'd have a perfect show because in a Broadway mix you might do six or seven thousand fader moves in two hours, right? Mm. Odds of me getting six or seven thousand fader moves perfectly spot on every single night are pretty low, right? Yeah. However, I don't make I don't make the same mistake twice. You know, um, if you keep making the same mistake again and again and again, you're going to fail. But if you learn from your mistakes and you try hard and you set yourself up to succeed, you'll be fine. And so in that, I, I always jokingly said, uh, 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 I might not be a hundred percent perfect, but I'll be 90% or 95%, hundred percent of the time. Right. Yeah. I'll get it almost perfect every single time, you know? So for me, that's, that was always something important. And that was the same thing in designing a sound system every day on tour was, uh, I, my consistency of a very high level was, was more important than being absolutely perfect. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, send them to questions at bobbyownercircle.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab. Or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, and now Radio Public. At BobbyOsinski.com and BobbyOwnerCircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. <laughs>